Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Off the Pulpit. I'm Eugene. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. We are three pastors and three friends conversing on life, culture, and church off the pulpit. Uh, again, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our interview with John Mark Comer. Uh, we have a couple more coming up, so really excited to share those. But as usual, uh, we'll begin our pod with our mailbag. Again, if you have any questions for us at any time, feel free to DM us on Instagram or just send it in when the sticker is up. It's usually on Wednesday or Friday before we record. But uh, first episode, well, everyone watched Good Games, right? Jason and Tom? Yes. Yes. Okay. So one person, or actually a lot of people asked. The multiple of these three questions out of our group, who do you guys think would win out of you three in Squid Games? <laughs> who would die first in Squid Games? And who would betray each other the first in Squid Games? Hmm. Jason would be that Indian guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he would die first. He'd be, he would trust oh, that we're, we're trying to help him and yeah, he'll get checked. <laughs> So I don't know when he would die, but he's that Indian guy, man. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I, I can, can see that, that too. Yeah. I can see that. Poor I think guy. Eugene will win. Eugene would win somehow. Really? I, I'm really bad at these games, though. Well, who, wait, Tom, who do you think would betray all of us? Are you saying that I would, though, betray all of us? Yeah, I think Eugene would, like, he would try to play the... The good card. He'd get into it. He'd yeah, get into he, it yeah, exactly. I would get into it. I would yeah. get into it. Although, I, yeah, I thought the show was a little overhyped. But, yeah, all, all we can agree on is I think Jason would die first because of his because of his kindness out of his heart. But hope that helps. Um, another question. It's kind of related to even what we were talking about a little bit offline. But um, John Mark Comer mentioned a little bit in, in his interview on his critique of the reformed or uh, just kind of traditional view of the gospel. Uh, and one question we got, I, I guess, in relation to that is, what are your guys' thoughts on the new perspective on Paul? So I guess maybe we can define what that is and then give our, I, I know we all three of us have our own kind of takes on that too. So <laughs> It's your tribe. <laughs> it's your tribe, guys. Jason, how yeah, how would you best describe the new perspective on Paul in the layman's perspective, I think? Um okay. Well, the new perspective on Paul essentially uh calls to question uh the reform doctrine of justification and the way that uh the reformers understood justification is that um their view of it was that what Paul was referring to when he talks about justification is he was working against legalism. And, you know, um, their view of justification stems from the, this idea of how a sinner can be right with God. Well, the new perspective on Paul basically says that, no, Paul's doctrine of justification actually isn't addressing that question. It's more addressing the problem of uh, Jewish exclusivism. So, you know, they saw... When Paul talks about works of the law, you know, he wasn't talking about like trying to, you know, works-based righteousness, that he was talking about like Jewish boundary markers, right? You know, things like circumcision, um, kosher. yeah, kosher, eating kosher, um, all that stuff. And so um, I, I'm probably like being really confusing to the layman right now, but I think that's uh, good. Yeah, I don't know. Tom, you want to add something to that? 
Well, I think his the new perspective on Paul it brings up a lot of good points that are missing from perhaps the Reformed tradition, and even Comer's critique I thought was really good. The idea of discipling and how the Reformed tribe has struggled with that. So I completely agree with the critiques that Comer gave. Um, I have big problems with due perspective on Paul's definition of justification. Uh, if Because my big question would be, so what gets you justified? What makes you right before God? And I think mm-hmm. that's where it's a little mushy to me. Like when I hear N.T. Wright and what he says about it, again, I love N.T. Wright. But when you get down to the core of like, well, what does it, mean to be righteous before God, I have a lot of questions about the new perspective on Paul. Although I do think the new perspective on Paul has a lot of good points and critiques about uh, the Reformed tradition. I think for me, because this, at least for me, this was like the boogeyman of Reformed theology a long time ago. Like mm-hmm. a lot of seminarians would always say like, oh man, this is the biggest threat to uh, the gospel. Um, so I always thought of it that way. I think the most helpful person I've read on that is Scott McKnight because I don't think he takes... And it's interesting, this is getting really nerdy, but I think each person in the new Paul, the new perspective camp, it's not all a consensus, if that makes sense. Um, I, for myself, I, I'm still figuring things out. But I think one of the things I appreciate, though, is the implications of a lot of these guys in these camps is trying to tell people when you have a very, quote unquote, reform gospel, your discipleship is just about your individual salvation. Mm-hmm. And it just ends there. And it kind of just, because like, oh, that's the point of the gospel. I think with Scott McKnight, the one thing that I've really felt comforted in his readings and his writings is this idea that, look, the gospel is not, it is individual salvation. And I don't know if Tom can correct me, but he seems like I'm still in this, hey, justification is important, but you're being justified into the kingdom and into this larger body. And I feel like the implications are a little bit more helpful in this time. So that's that's my take. I'm still I don't I'm not an expert. I'm still figuring things out too. But it's an interesting wrinkle in in the I guess camps of tribes of church too. So anything else to add for you guys? Yeah, I mean I I will say that um, I I agree with that. In some sense, I think it is an indictment on the kind of spirituality maybe the reform doctrine of justification you know yeah. can produce. You know because a big you know, kind of a big premise of the new perspective on Paul is that, you know, is trying to like push against the notion that first century Judaism was like this religion of works and legalism and that we needed to solve that by making it about grace. You know, when, you know, I think those who subscribe to the new perspective on Paul would say that first century Judaism was a religion of grace Mm -hmm. and that there wasn't like this, huge dichotomy between effort and grace you know that the, you know grace was the fuel that was actually um causing a person to live you know in a certain way and so i think a lot of the people who subscribe to that doctrine now they're really trying to recover this idea that just because you believe in grace doesn't necessarily negate the fact that there is effort involved maybe not earning but effort involved in the christian life I guess to answer, so J- Jason is in the new perspectives. Uh, Th- Thomas is in the old perspective. I guess I'm leaning new perspective, but I'm still freaking things out. So I hope wait, it's wait, helpful. Wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't say that I'm in the new perspective. Oh, you're not? Okay, okay. He's, he's in the... I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling. wrestling. Sorry, sorry. He's with me. He's with me. I apologize. Yeah. So he's with me. But um, hey, healthy disagreements are always good for the church. So if, if you want to read up more on this, uh, just, just 
I think TGC has some good resources, and Scott McKnight is also a very accessible resource too for that. So that's that question. Uh, oh yeah, by the way, Tom also wanted to let us. Tom, it, you know, I think he's been grouped in our searching of a new camp, but Tom is still reformed to the core, right? Tom, is that a good way to put it? Yes, although I I like the new camp and I okay. respect where yeah, it yeah. comes from. Um, another question we got is, I guess it's interesting because our pod is kind of on this. Is having a majority monoethnic church inherently racist or inherently uh, unbiblical in your guys' opinion? It can be racist, and it can be unbiblical. I don't think it necessarily means it's racist or unbiblical. What, what do you think are the indicators, Tom, that it is either unbiblical or inherently racist? Well, inherently racist means you don't welcome anybody and you're like opposing anyone with, with the, the different ethnicity, which yeah. very few churches are like that. I think what they're probably talking about is more so you just see a predominantly predominant ethnic group in a church and it feels very ethnic. And to me, I actually think every church, in my opinion, uh, it shouldn't hinder people of different races from being part of that church. Is there like hindrances that are there? And... Uh, to me, I would question, like, if there are hindrances, what's the motive behind that? And that's where you could lead to a, quote, racist church or unbiblical. But at the same time, if you say that, then I guess every church in Korea and every church in Africa are racist because those are all one ethnicity. And so the whole idea of, like, what a church is supposed to be, this multi-ethnic, different nations and tribes all together, where there's only a few places in the world where you could even have churches like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you have an opportunity like that, that's great. But to say that every local church has to be multi-ethnic to reflect that heavenly kingdom that's very few because there's not a lot of places in the world that are multi-ethnic in the city so yeah a lot of questions with that Mm. i think that's well put i agree i mean and i and i think um when we talk about the church a lot of times we think that one local church is supposed to represent the church Mm -hmm. capital c and i think in some sense you know the every tribe every nation every tongue I see it more globally as mm. the church, you know, mm. all together, you know, and um, and so that's that. Um, I, d- I also agree, though, that churches can, you know, definitely be inherently racist. I think using exclusionary language, um, kind of using certain, uh, you know, I, I think Korean Americans, to be honest, are notorious for this. You know, often like using Korean in the sermons themselves. Like chubal, like yeah, like or exactly, pamphlet. yeah, um, and you know, playing like only Korean games that <laughs> only people who grew up in Korean immigrant churches would understand. Wait, although things have changed because being Korean is cool now. So yeah, that's maybe, true, though. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, you know, but on the flip side, I think. Oftentimes, monoethnic churches exist because of racism in other spaces, too. Yeah. You know, um, and yeah, I mean, like Jamar Tisby talks about in his book that the black church only exists because of racism in the white church, you know, and I think oftentimes um, uh, leaders uh, of specific ethnic groups have had to pave their own way because they would not be given a voice or leadership roles in other spaces and so i also you know see it that way as well yeah yeah that's a good way to put it last question i i think we might answer this but um it might be just good to answer this again well what are you guys' thoughts on christians dating non-christians 
um, should we value, I think they were asking, should we value connection over some values? But that's a very clear cut question to me. A any answers for you guys from that? I understand why you would want to date a non-Christian because I know people will say they connect with them way more than they do with Christian people. Yeah. Um, there's that, what was that line in, um, what's that Korean show? The Can The Canadian show? Uh, Kim's Convenience? Yeah, yeah. I remember that line where that mom told her to date like a nice Christian, cool Christian oh, yeah. man. And she's like, there is no cool Christian <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's, I could, so again, I completely understand <laughs> yeah. that sentiment. Um, but you have to wrestle with how does your faith and what God calls you to do to raise a family and to walk in the faith, how does that match with the partner that you're going to be sharing so much intimacy with? One thing that I heard someone say that that was so true is it's hard enough to make a marriage work when all of your values and beliefs align. Even when those align, it's, it's hard. But when your worldview and moral compass just totally disaligns mm. from one another, mm. like how much more challenging would that be? I feel like oftentimes one thing happens more than the other, which is you're either going to get really intimate with your spouse and far away from Christ, because, or you can get really intimate with Christ and you're just going to feel really far from your spouse because you can't have it both ways when something's that precious to you. It's just too painful to get that close to somebody who doesn't understand why you care about your faith as much as you do. And so I just think there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot more hardship that people realize they don't realize until they actually get to the other side of marriage. Yes, totally agree. Totally, totally agree. agree. I think the only thing I would add, I totally agree with Tom, but I do would add for the church not to scarlet letter a guy or a girl that's dating non because I even me and Tom know someone that like dated a non-Christian and they're both serving and faithful in the church. So I think the only thing the caveat I would add, I think Tom is clearly on the just nail on the head. But if someone does do that, like don't just like, oh, they're a sinner, so I'm gonna cast them off. I think there's still opportunities there. So I think that's the only thing I would add too. So yeah, that's all that's all the mailbag questions that we have. Again, if you have any questions at any time, you can DM us anytime on Instagram on Off the Pulpit. And also we have a story up usually on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. So just respond to that. But moving on to our episodes today, uh, we wanted to actually talk about mental health, uh, counseling emotional health our emotions and all that and how it ties in with the gospel um, I do think it's something that is a, a catchphrase but still new to the church and to the faith especially in our Korean American Asian American context that um, I don't know I feel like there's still a stigma with counseling at least from the people that I've uh, encountered even at my church so we want to do that and I guess the first question I want to throw out for both of you guys because I know both of you guys have a lot of thoughts and even expertise on this um, and this is very, this could go anywhere you want to go, but how do you guys think mental health and our emotions tie in with Jesus and the gospel? Well, I mean, I've always said on this podcast and, and at our church as well, that, um, I see discipleship as not making us more Christian, but making us more human because Jesus was the most fully human person to ever walk the earth. And if you believe that, then, um, what is it, what is humanness and wholeness and a humanity mean and i think it it encompasses everything physical spiritual emotional mental um the whole thing and so in in that sense i think mental health is a huge component of discipleship um because it's a huge component of what it means to be human 
Mm. Um, and you know, emotions specifically. I feel like even when you read through the read through the Bible, there's so much um, there that gives you know a, a the emotions like a lot of dignity. You know, there's there's a lot there that talks about how people process their emotions, the importance of emotional health. You know, and when you think about all the other aspects of living the Christian life, you know, how are you going to engage in the work of racial justice for the long haul? How are you going to um, cultivate a healthy marriage? How are you going to cultivate healthy friendships and relationships um, if you're not willing to take time to take care of your mental health and emotional health? So in that sense, I think it's all connected. And, and I think when you look at even Jesus's life and ministry, he was so in tune with his mental and emotional health. And so I think it's, it's very connected to Jesus and the gospel. Yeah, I can 100% agree. God is not just a God of truth, but he's a God of where he displays emotions. He is loving. He, his heart breaks. He has anger. And yet they are all appropriate emotions for the actions that's being responded to, which I think a lot of that's kind of the issue with the mental health is, are you conveying the type of emotions that are appropriate to the situation that you're in or the relationships that you're in. God is the God who uh, has ranges of emotions. He's a feeling God, he's an emotional God, but it is an appropriate emotion to the, the specific action that's taking place. And we as human beings are naturally distorted because of sin and the way we respond to things, the way we emotionally respond to things. And I think that's where emotional health is critical to becoming not just healthy as human beings, but really displaying the Imago Dei. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it just struck me as uh, you guys were talking, like how much of the imperatives in the epistles are emotional at the core. Like it's not just, oh, like worship and read the word, but it's, hey, be slow to anger, right? Or do not envy. And all these is kind of tied to your emotions and kind of your emotional health. And I guess uh, related to that, kind of, kind of just observing now our church context, like, what do you think is the state or even the awareness of mental health or emotional health in our circles or context of the church? Like, is that something that you've seen as aware or is this something that you feel like it's just, just kind of coming to the forefront? I feel like in the Asian church community, I'm not sure if this is like your guys' church, but you have like a few people who are like deep into that world. Like they understand mental health and they're like psychology majors or plan to be counselors. And then the rest of the majority is like a huge gap. Like there's not too much of a understanding or even a need for it unless yeah. they're in trouble with their marriage or things like that. But mm -hmm. I feel like there's like a few specialists and then everyone else, it seems like it's a distant world in terms of that field of mental health and counseling and so forth. Um, in my context, you know, I would say if you were to ask, have asked me that question like five years ago, I would have said, yeah, like um, it's still very stigmatized and, you know, there we really need to work towards, you know, demystifying mental health a little bit. I would say now um, I don't really feel that stigma around mental health. What I see a lot in our context, though, is that mental health has become a very like physiological medical thing where, you know, people recognize it, um, they take medication for it, you know, they, they know they have to see, you know, they're down to see a counselor, go to therapy, and people talk about, 
you know, their experiences with their therapists all the time in my context, which I think is a is a huge step forward. Yeah. One thing that I, I see, though, is that now we've kind of moved away from any kind of language around mental health also being a spiritual issue. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know, and I think a, a big part of why it was so stigmatized in the past is that, you know, we were t- told to deal with our, like our mental health was the result of like some hidden sin in our lives. And, you know, people were like w- people who wanted to see therapy, a therapist or take medication, like they were deficient and something was wrong with them. All they needed to do was repent of their sins. And, you know, I think that kind of language really pushed people in the wrong direction. I would say now we've kind of like come full circle and maybe gone to the other extreme where, people don't really want to talk about sin being a disordering of your emotions and disordering of your mental state as well, that they're all actually connected. And so it's like a lot of times Mm -hmm. people think that the only solution for mental health and for like anxiety, stress is to take medication or Mm -hmm. like is, you know, seeing a therapist. Again, very important, I think, healthy things. Um, but I think we also, we have to kind of like nuance that now with it also being a spiritual issue. And if you do that, which I, I completely resonate with that. I think that's very true where it's not stigmatized at our church where people are willing to go. Um, but because it's kind of seen that way where this is the, it's not really a spiritual thing. It's like my mental health issues that Mm -hmm. I need special help with. No one else is kind of allowed to speak into that, nor do you mm. see the need to share that with anybody else because it's mm. me and my counselor. He's the only one who could really address this appropriately. And you remove like the community and you remove even friendships, even like pastors from taking a, a role in helping and ministering to you. Mm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I think in my context, it's a little different. I, I think it's not stigmatized as long, like having issues is no longer stigmatized. So if you have depression or anxiety, I think it's cool. But it's interesting when I talk to people who are just like, quote unquote, fine, you know, whatever that means. And I say like, oh, have you thought about counseling or therapy? They're like, oh, I'm good. Right. That it's just this kind of even going to what you said, like, oh, mental issues is just like this ailment and I can get over it. So I've I've observed that a lot. Um, I've also on the flip side seen therapy as this like super just solution pill that you can take and it'll solve all your problems and you don't even need to go to church anymore so i agree with that too um but i i guess like kind of related to that as pastors i think you see a lot of the issues going on especially i think covid and it's we could do an episode just on covid and mental health but i think covid kind of uncovered a lot of what we're talking about and we'll get into i think jason brought up an interesting point and we'll get into that in a little bit but i guess for you guys kind of observing your people right now too like what are the common like i you know i don't want us to diagnose people but what are the most common you know ailments or mental kind of disorders that you see in the church within your people that are kind of plaguing them maybe maybe that's there on the surface level but also like as you minister that's really just kind of hidden and there's kind of a endemic going on uh on on an emotional level in our churches that you've observed i am convinced we've all experienced low-key trauma in our lives mm. Mm. and the stuff that we experience later in our adult life it is merely a trigger that's mapped to our childhood that we don't really see as a big deal but it is a big deal yeah and all of us have 
not either dealt with, to the extent of what we dealt with it or addressed it is to the extent of how we're going to be dealing with it as adults. What I guess to follow up, Tom and Jason, you can jump into like what are the most common forms of trauma that you've seen within your church people? Well, I think like every, especially if you come from an Asian household, and there's like that basic trauma of your parents immigrating to a different country, losing their status, having to work sixteen to twenty hours or whatnot uh, a day or so. They have to; they're never home. There's not really that type of emotional bond with your caregivers at a young age. All that is some type of form of low-level trauma that's there that I think is the root issue for a lot of adult issues that we have. Yeah. It's interesting kind of to that point too, seeing also, I don't know if it's going too far, but seeing how people respond to that trauma. Like I've seen people, and this is in more in my boat, like, oh, I hate my family and I hate that they immigrated. But I've also seen the flip side where they're extremely loyal to a fault, especially mm-hmm. within a context where they'd almost kind of stunts their maturity and emotional and spiritual growth because it's just like oh my family first so it's interesting or you or you, ex- or you explain it away like what can mm. my parents have done mm. like, mm. I, like i don't hold it against them like, that's so true I, and it was just true like what could your parents have done but your caregivers were not the type of caregivers that human beings are meant to have as a child and that's going to do something to you yeah so yeah. i think that's a, a huge source of problem for a lot of asian americans who don't acknowledge that yes jason anything else to add to just of what you observed yeah, I mean, definitely uh, agree with Tom. Um, I think that um, what what we deal with a lot more now, and I think people are more cognizant of it, is their family system. You know, and I think more and more we're realizing that okay, we're not just like an I we're not just living our lives in a vacuum. We're we're embedded in our relationships, our own family, other relationships that are really important. You know, to us. Um, and all of these things are actually having an impact on, you know, and, and, and they're, they're all coming out depending on certain stressors and certain circumstances in our lives. You know, they always talk about how circumstances reveal some of the things that are in there that we never really address. And I think what you brought up with COVID is a perfect example of that. You know, when people were, I talked to a lot of married couples who tell me COVID was especially difficult because it was the first time they had to kind of just be alone with their spouse and they saw a lot of family baggage yes. that they never knew was there yes just start seeping out um in the surf uh, you know at the surface level and so um yeah i mean i i, I agree and in, in our context you know los angeles you know huge um emphasis on image and popularity and followers and you know all like that all of that which is like a huge american or a global problem right now is just hyper intensified in a city like la mm. and so definitely like anxiety depression um low self-image um narcissism i think is really big um and i think that's it's just indicative of our culture because it's kind of the the combination of obviously the isolation of the pandemic but then what are you isolated with social media which is like the worst thing for anxiety depression it's i mean it's proven that you know people who are on social media have far higher levels of anxiety stress you know depression than than those who are off social media you know because it's just comparison it's just envy it's all the things that the bible warns about just like intensified on social media so yeah. Yes. 
I, we'll probably do an episode on social media because I do think that's an interesting point. Um, and I think, yeah, I think especially Jason being in LA, that's a unique, that's like the, the capital of all that stuff too. But I, I think one thing I kind of wanted to circle back and I think Jason and Tom mentioned it first, but Jason mentioned it too, to kind of just stay in a little bit, a little bit is just the idea of like family trauma. Cause I do think what Tom mentioned, I think everyone, I, I would say, I would venture a majority of our, our listeners are Korean American or Asian American, and they're kind of going through that too. So I guess for you guys too, just, we can just kind of riff a little bit more, but like, what are your guys' opinions on like, okay, how can we, as Asian American Christians, as you know, for our three of us, Korean American Christians, what are some gospel centered yet wise ways to kind of wade through that trauma? Because I think all of us carry some sort of baggage, as Tom mentioned, on that uh, that shelf of our life. Well, I think it's going to get exposed. Mm. It's something that you're going to either push away, but it's going to get exposed when you're in intimate relationships. Especially marriage. Especially marriage. And I think even parenting, like when mm-hmm. you have kids, mm. like it just you realize the way your parents parented you and the good and the bad. And the analogy that I always heard or the imagery that I was told that I thought was helpful is it's kind of like um, a garden that is growing weeds, like your family background or the, the mess that's dealing with it. And the weeds that grow, it's it's slowly just growing. And you could choose to either pull out the weeds every once in a while and keep your garden clean, or you just kind of leave it alone and it becomes this huge mess and it just leaks out where your garden is completely gone. And it's hard for you to be intimate with people or for people to go into your garden to see what's actually happening there because you covered it with weeds. And that's when that's when like it becomes huge relational issues with your spouse or your close friends or your kids. And you just now have to go into that garden and start pulling those weeds. And it just takes a long time because you mm-hmm. put it away for so long. So it's almost mm-hmm. like you have to do the hard work. And if you do it proactively where you explore, you kind of see why did I respond this way? What happened to my family? And you take those steps. That's like the proactive way of dealing with it. But if you don't do it that way, then it's going to happen reactively when you find yourself having intimacy issues with your spouse and your kids. And so I do think it's something you have to deal with or you're going to struggle with intimacy with people. No, I, I totally agree. And I guess to be a little bit more vulnerable and just honest, like I'm seeing counseling right now on this issue. And it's just like you just realize, like Tom mentioned, if it's a garden, like the roots of that go so like deep and deeper than you can ever imagine of how much it influences you. And I think the things that I found helpful, and this isn't from me, this is more from my counselor that like, you need to be aware that projection, especially I think for our context is so strong that I think for me, any elderly Asian male, my dad is projected onto them, the good and the bad. My wife, especially my mom is projected onto her, the good and a lot of the bad. And I think if you're just not aware of that, like Tom mentioned, you're not gardening that projection, all of a sudden you can't separate your past trauma from your current reality. And it's just so much harder to deal with like what's going on. So that's just been helpful. And I think to, to the next point is just like, I think having an outside, you know, hopefully a counselor, but it is, it is really expensive. Maybe even your pastor, like just kind of wade through that. I, I know one thing we did back when I was at church with Tom was like, and I think Tom was big on this is like family mapping or just like, what would you call it? The, Tom, the like, life maps. Yeah. The life maps. I think that's really Huge. important. Yeah. Really important. And to do it in a community, not by yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I think, and you'll see and do how it multiple you multiple times. Up. Yes. And you'll, and it's like interesting how much you get out of it each time. 
Um, wait, can you can you maybe men- like describe what that is, Tom? Like fam- the life mapping too. Yeah, listeners. life map. The way it works is you think about your life and you think about all the significant things that you remember that shaped you, from good moments to supposedly mundane moments to painful moments, and you just write down free thought those different events that took place. And then after you write those down, you put it in chronological order and you share with somebody or the community, ideally, this is my life. You, why'd you put this down? What were you feeling when you're going through this? And after you explain it, it gives you kind of a coherent understanding of this is my life. This is where God led me. You actually see themes that show up. You actually realize that why did I put this down and why was that so painful when you didn't even think it was that painful? Or if you don't notice it, people in the community will point out, hey, that's an interesting theme. I noticed there's a lot of people who died in your life. Like what, what's going on there? Or I noticed mm-hmm. that you, your parents left you, like your, your mother figure left you at a young age. Like how did that affect you? Like these things that you just kind of took for granted I feel like when you see it from this perspective of a linear timeline and exposing it and showing to other people, it gives you a perspective that you just cannot replicate elsewhere by creating a timeline like that. And, yeah, I do and it all the time. I do it all the time with people. Yeah, same. Um, and it not only like gives you greater self-awareness, it actually breeds a lot of empathy for mm-hmm, others mm-hmm. in your community because mm-hmm. you start to see, oh, like that thing that I just thought was an annoying habit is actually rooted in something a lot deeper that yeah. happened in this person's life. Everyone at our church who goes through premarital counseling, uh, mm-hmm. every couple at premarital counsel, they have to do a life map. And that is my by far my favorite session that we do. And it's it's crazy because I have the couple always do it separately and then they have to come back and share it to one another. And even couples that have been together for like 10, 11, 12 years, they're like, as the, as the other person is sharing their life map, you see the, all the light bulbs going off. Like, dude, if I knew that, oh, like, I see. You know, and, and you realize, man, like, the, the person I'm marrying, you're, not, you're really not just marrying that person. You're marrying their entire yes. family. They're, you're yes. marrying their story. You're marrying all that stuff. Whether and so, they, they know it or not, too. Exactly. Yeah. Although, did you ever have it where you did a life map with a married couple, Jason, and they started like the first timeline is like college, like they kind of bypassed everything that happened when they were a child. Totally. And actually, because of that, I I now make it a point to be like, you have to go back, you know. (laughs) Um, And I also tell them, and I don't know about you guys, like I also tell them, like when you do life maps, it's really easy to map out your life by the milestones like oh i graduated Mm -hmm. high school graduated college but when you know i really try to encourage anyone who does life maps with me at church like think about like a lot of times it's the moments in between you know that like random moments in your life that you that come to mind that actually have shaped you the most um and you know, I find that actually like when a person has to describe why they included that specific moment, that's usually when the gold starts coming out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And as someone that has done it several times and I found it beneficial, and especially to those listening or like, oh, my life's boring or like, I, you know, I already like there's nothing to share. Like you are exactly the person that does need to do that. And in community. I think that's the biggest thing because they are able to uncover things that you just never could see on your own. Or even if you don't do a life map, one thing that I've been learning that was really helpful for me 
is I run across people who they're very aware of what's happened in their past. Like my parents got a divorce and I had relational issues and you know, they, 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 they know how to explain it, but as they're explaining it, it's almost like there's no sadness. There's no emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird. At, f- at first, I couldn't understand, like, why are you so emotionless as you talk about these painful things? Or why do you feel even so, like, uninterested in exploring it? Because they seem like they almost got over it. And yet you could clearly see through their actions later. Like, no, there's something that's connected there. And I realized, like, from different readings I had, like, your brain it operates on two different levels. You have the reasoning side of your brain. And when you go through something that's traumatic, you your brain just reasons it away where you understand this is what happened. Mm-hmm. But we're not just reasoning creatures, we're emotional creatures. And that emotional side, did you actually feel the pain? Did you allow yourself to feel sad in that moment your parents separated? And that's a part I think a lot of people don't explore. And until you actually allow yourself to feel, you're not really getting healing from it. So you could explain yes. all you want. Oh, I know my parents got divorced. I understand why it happened. And that's just the way life is. Like that doesn't mean you're healed from it. You understand yes. it, but you are not processing it the way you should as a human. Mm. Hundred times yes. Apathy is a narcotic. It is not uh, a medicine of anything, Ooh, right? And th- this not it's not for me. It's for my counselor, and he was telling me like you've been hotboxing in your car with apathy to a point where you don't even know what you're wearing. And I was like, mm. man, this is so true. And I think this it's Tom's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, I think Tom's just straight on the nail. That I think if you think oh because I don't feel anything, I'm okay you are exactly at a place where you need to dive a little bit deeper because I think apathy, again, is just, it's a defense mechanism. And I think it stops so many people like, oh yeah, I don't feel anything, so it's okay. And it's like, you should feel something. Like there's no way, how, however mundane your parenting or your parent or your family life was like there there needs to be some emotion so i i totally agree with tom but you find the most apathetic person too they're the ones where like it's like they're so apathetic and then there's like a moment of intense breakdown yeah and then it's like really awkward because it's it's like it like that that moment usually doesn't come at a time that would warrant that much emotion that's but true out of nowhere they'll that's just so like true. break down yeah it's so like true. oh man you got some stuff so it made me empathize with apathetic people because before yeah. i was like what's why are you so apathetic what's wrong with you but now i'm like oh you're like an emotional mess yes. and you're just stuffing it with apathy mm. yes jesus was never apathetic the more i read the gospels like that's just not an emotion and part of his like arsenal. So yeah, with that, again, I think that's helpful. We, maybe we can dive in a little bit into this in a little, uh, another episode, but I guess kind of shifting gears and we kind of already hinted at this. I think, especially with family trauma or any issue that you're going through, I think counseling, all three of us would agree is one of the most important things maybe to try out, especially as a Christian. And I guess I just kind of want to shift a little bit of our conversation on that. And I guess, um, Tom, I feel like you'd be the best to kind of explain this, but I think there are different modes and models of counseling for the Christian. I know Tim Keller had an article that, that, that kind of broke it down too, but I guess for you, Tom, like, what do you feel like are the different models of Christian counseling that you've seen just kind of out there in the Christian world? Yeah, there's actually a book if you want to break it down. Um, it's pretty boring, but it does a, a nice intro. It's called yeah. Psychology and Christianity, Five Views by Eric Johnson. Um, when you read it, it's it's five views, but I really think it's three views. Uh, okay. Three of the guys are saying the same things. You have on one end of the spectrum counseling as we know it, psych- psychiatry, 
uh, secular counseling, if you want to call it that. And that's pretty much just everything we understand about psychology and implementing that to help people. Your whole goal is just to help people. And a lot of Christians, or if you get your counseling through your insurance company, then you're going to go through that type of counseling. Mm-hmm. In the middle, you have uh, what they call integrative counseling, which is you have a Christian worldview, but you are integrating psychology to help people to get better and to get healed. And so that's the middle model. And then the more conservative model is biblical counseling, which is the idea that, hey, ultimate healing comes from the gospel. And with biblical counseling, what I've kind of learned is there's a spectrum. You have a spectrum of what they mean by that. And so that tends to be the three different camps if you want to talk about Christian counseling. And they're all skeptical of one another. And so it's actually a lot more complicated I think people think when you see a counselor, what kind of schooling they got and what type of counseling they subscribe to. Mm. No, I, I think that's a really helpful breakdown. I guess the the natural question after that is, what would you recommend to, to our church members or to even those listening? Um, because I would assume most of those listening are Christian or, or trying to have a Christian worldview. And, you know, I, I think there are positives and benefits of actually all three. But I guess for you guys, if you had to choose one to kind of recommend to people, um, what would you uh, to our listeners? Well, I think counseling in itself, like the world of psychology, it is helpful. But at the same time, it's not going to solve all your issues. Yes. There's limitations to every uh, school of science. And I think that's almost a critique of the conservative side of where the biblical counselors will say, hey, that's why you can't rely on psychology and so forth. At the same time, there is a lot of common grace wisdom that you could find in psychology. And so I find myself wrestling between biblical counseling and integrative counseling because on the one hand, I do believe it's true. Ultimate healing comes from the gospel in this wide umbrella perspective. But at the same time, there are things that are found in common grace wisdom to help people with their depression, with their addictions that we can utilize and I fully yep. subscribe to that. So I know there's some counselors who believe you're super conservative, like no medicine because it's just about the gospel that heals you. I'm like, bro, like God gave us bodies and he gave us science for a reason. Uh, at the same time, I don't think we should rely upon medicine to fully heal the broken mind because like Jason mentioned earlier, I think there are spiritual elements to it as well. I see. So, I mean, naturally you'd fall more into integration model if you had to. Uh, well, I came from CCF, which is a biblical counseling model. So I'm not sure oh. if I'm allowed to be integrative, oh. but I like what the integrative mm. model says. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Jason. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with that too. I found in my personal experience though, with counseling, like you could have like with counseling, like you really have to, in some sense, shop around to find a counselor that mm-hmm. kind of like works well with you. And yeah. I've, you know, sometimes like made the mistake of choosing a counselor based on kind of what I knew their background was, but they really were not speaking my language or, or really they, they weren't kind of understanding where I was coming from. And yeah. so there's so many elements I think that come into play. There are also different counselors that focus and they have, um, you know, they specialize in different things. So I think some counselors specialize in trauma and grief and things like that. So even, I would say in every single one of those three, um, there's, you also have like a wide ranging kind of spectrum of different counselors there. And so um, I, I agree. You know, I think the benefit of biblical counseling is that at the end of the day, it will take you to the gospel. 
Um, what I found though that counseling in general is most helpful for like across the board, and I would say all three can do this well if you find the right person, is that getting you to become aware of the things mm -hmm. and getting you to name some of those things. And this is where like being plugged into a local church, um, having relationships with leaders in your church, um, you know, getting solid gospel-centered preaching, um, being a part of gospel-centered community can really help supplement any kind of counseling. So like yeah. your counseling names the thing that you're, you're dealing with and names the baggage and, and then you have all these other tools that will help bring the gospel into that situation and so yes yeah. yep yeah i almost see counseling professional counseling it's it's like surgery but once you get surgery you still need pt you're not fully healed and mm -hmm. so i feel like if mm -hmm. you're somebody who's wounded and you're just getting pt it's like dude you need surgery man you're just not gonna make it but when you once you get surgery if you don't ever get pt it's like man you're yeah you got the surgery but you're still like in bed and i realize like that's kind of how a lot of people i feel like with counseling that's a mistake is if you just go to counseling and you don't mm. talk to anybody else about what's going on. Mm. It's like, hey, that's one peg out of this three peg thing that you need. And one of the other pegs is community. Like you just need people around you to talk about this with your counselor. Yeah, I, I think a good community is a form of counseling almost, mm -hmm. right? For, for you. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, I think for me too, I think out of the three models, I really think it matters on what you're going through. Like if you're going through heavy trauma, like sexual abuse or physical abuse and i'm gonna say this very explicitly i don't think you should see a biblical counselor just find because, help yeah yeah like you, you <laughs> just somebody. need like you need help and i think oh, yeah. e sometimes the secular people that have seen this even more and more they might even be more helpful than a christian guy or a christian girl on the flip True. side i think some fools just need to see a biblical counselor because like they go to i don't know like a counselor like, oh you know i found like no no you, you just need like you need some bible verses in your life right <laughs> and like that's what you need i think the vast majority of us i think the integration model is really helpful especially with the family stuff that we've been talking about mm -hmm. um i found that yeah I, like integration like those um counselors that believe in attachment theory the idea that you know attachment on a parental level whether you got it or not kind of influences who you are as a person that's so helpful that i think a lot of biblical counselors don't have but i i know biblical counselors are really helpful so i guess that's just my paradigm for that too and i think, I think Tom's the, right, the, just, the yeah. problem with biblical counselors is and again i come from that camp more than not is you try to run to the solution too fast yes it's like your problems or oh, those are your problems well here's the gospel and it's like brother wait for session four like yes. this is session yeah. one. Like, can yes. you please listen to my problems first <laughs> before yes. you give me exactly? Yeah, shove the gospel down my throat. But some people need that. Some people, some people that. do. So at one point you need it. Yeah. At one point. But I, I agree with Tom that that's a that's a fair critique. I think of that model too. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. I guess like another question I want to ask you, and then we kind of already answered this. Do you feel like there still is a stigma with counseling? And if so, like how do we get over it? But if not, like what do you guys think has led to the change? If, I, don't, if I don't. I don't think our generation there is. Mm. Do you think it's just because we've like seen the trauma of our older generation Maybe because we know the first generation there was there was a stigma <laughs> yeah, yeah. and we just saw the results of that yeah. i actually would think the younger generation it's almost like a badge it, of honor yeah like i'm yeah. seeing a therapist and it's like mm -hmm. oh wow like <laughs> yeah that's good for true. you like yes. you got some stuff you're dealing with you know that's it's very, true it's very punk rock you know yeah mm -hmm. I, I think brokenness a flip side of this brokenness is almost seen as a virtue these days mm -hmm. where it's like the most the more traumatized you are the more power you have which i think that's his own problems but I, that's another 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 time another 
episode. But yeah, I, I guess with counseling, I think the the three of us would really just push like just see counseling. Even if you don't feel like you need it, I think just seeing a counselor at one point in your life is really helpful. I think seeing counseling before any big decision, whether it is marriage, even kids. I haven't thought about that, but even parenting is helpful. Dude, I'm so a big I, believer in pre, like pre-childhood or before you have kids. Like you should see counseling. Man. Yes, yes, because how you were parented is usually how you will parent, whether you like it or not. Um, not that there's no hope to that, but I, I agree with Tom. So yeah, we would really push that. Um, and I guess just to end our episode, just a couple questions. Just like okay, given all that, you know, hey, we'll see a counselor, but maybe I can't afford it right now. But like for you guys, I, I just wanted to add, like kind of end it. Like, what are your kind of just general tips on to stay emotionally healthy as a Christian? Um, so I guess for you guys, like what very general question. You guys can take it anywhere. Do do you have any tips or specific pieces of advice? as a Christian, as a disciple, as a church member, to stay emotionally healthy in your context? Um, one simple one that I think everyone could do is, um, I got this from that book. Have you guys read Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella? Like, I just, I just thought it was fascinating how most unwealthy or po- impoverished countries that are people living in villages, they don't suffer from depression. Hmm. They don't suffer from anxiety because they're so communal they live in villages uh they live in tribes and it's almost like their identity has been formed for them and there's obviously they could lead to oppression and bad stuff but while they're oppressed they're not depressed and i think for us because we live in such an individualized world we don't really have as strong of a communal ties as most human beings are meant to have which which bella's whole argument is that's what led to the rise of psychotherapy in the Mm -hmm. western world and so to me, if that's true, one of the best ways to be emotionally healthy is just surround yourself with people and don't just talk surface level stuff. Like what's going on in your heart? What are you going through? Do you have anybody you can even turn to about that? Is that happening regularly? And I feel like uh, Bella, his whole point is, one of the points he made was people are basically paying for friends. <laughs> Counselors like are people you that actually friendships are supposed to do for you. And so I think just having that steady stream of friendships that helps so much with your emotional health. Yeah, and and by friendships, real friendships, not Twitter friendships or IG <laughs> friendships. Yes, you know, and it, and I I would say like on that same token, um, and speaking of habits of the heart, you know, find ways to unplug, like regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things they made us do in seminary is we had to do this silent retreat, where we we you know, no electronics, no talking. And you would be shocked at some of the things that come out of your heart and mind when you have time to actually think, you know, and I think because of the digital age that we live in, we have so many ways to just keep covering, you know, we we have so many ways to escape and to avoid like actually wrestling and navigating our feelings because, you know, we can just overstimulate ourselves with with our phones and electronics and things like that and so you know um incorporating silence solitude um sabbath i think all of these things are really um helpful for mental health yeah we're definitely we're definitely going to do an episode on social media the more jason brings that up um so I, i totally agree i think the only thing i would add is um i think and this kind of ties into to Tom's point too um, of finding a good community because a good community 
more than anything, helps you articulate what you're going through. Um, because sometimes you can get lost in your own thoughts. And I think articulation community is a big part of it. But I also think you need to kind of make room for that in your own life, which I kind of, you can't do unless Jason's point is, is heard that you have to unplug. And as you unplug, what do you do? It's not that you just veg out, but that you do the hard work of articulating what you're going through, whether that's writing. I think that's really helpful. Whether that's even praying that out, like, like King David does in the Psalms. Um, I think one, and I'll bring this up. I'm not, this isn't just from memory. I think one quote that has helped me the most on this idea is this author named Lewis Hyde. He says, sometimes you're unable to escape from a bad mood until you have correctly articulated the feeling because articulation allows a slight gap to open between the feeling and the self. And that gap permits the freedom of both. And I, I found that quote to be so helpful because like, and especially within our understanding of who we are, if we're made in the image of God, we're, our, our emotions are a part of us. But the thing that makes us at human being at the core is ultimately the image of God. And sometimes these emotions cover that. And I think articulation, like Thomas point, whether it's through community or just through yourself, it just helps your emotional health so much because we don't do that. We never articulate what we're going through. We, we maybe post something about what we want people to think that we're going through. Maybe we're scrolling and just kind of vegging out, but we never actually articulate that. And I think if we just do that more, um, that'll just kind of help us be hopefully better disciples and be more emotionally healthy. So I hope that's helpful. Um, the kind of last practical question I want to ask you guys is on the flip side, how can we also be better counselors in a late layman's term to our church members and our friends? Because I think Tom mentioned like community is important, but if you're like me, Maybe you have a friend who's just like, dude, I'm going through all this. I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I feel depressed or I have suicidal thoughts. And yeah, that's kind of the extreme. But I think oftentimes people in the communal sense feel a bit under-equipped. Okay, how do I deal with this? So I guess for you guys, what are your advices to be more helpful emotional counselors to our community and to our church members that we have? I think one of the best advice I've heard about counseling is I heard someone once say, if I only had one hour with somebody to counsel them, I'd spend the first 55 minutes asking them questions and finding out what's going on. And then I'll spend the last five minutes sharing something truthful. Mm. And I think that's something that most people need is you just need someone to listen to them. And that's what Job needed. Like Job just needed his <laughs> friends to listen and they screwed up once they started talking. Mm. Um, I think it doesn't mean we don't say anything. I feel like, do you, does the person feel heard? Because I know for me, like that's when, if, you, if I feel like you heard me, I'm more ready to listen to what you have to say versus if you're just kind of lecturing me, uh, it just kind of bounces off my heart. And so I do feel like listening is something anyone could do. And that's often what most people need. And they just feel better, just like you said earlier, like they just need that moment of articulation, mm-hmm. that moment that you empathize with them. And maybe there's some truth that you could say, but very minimal. Yes, and I think the reason people feel ill-equipped just tells you that our typical like modus operandi mm-hmm. is to give unsolicited advice. <laughs> and so because people are like, what do I say? You know, that's why they feel ill-equipped. Mm-hmm. But anyone can ask questions, you mm-hmm. know, and anyone, you know, and I, you're right. I think it's, if anything, that shows 
more of a desire to get to know what a person is going through. Mm-hmm. You know, I like my pet peeve is when people say, I know exactly what you're going through <laughs> and this is what you have to do. Like that immediately, like that is like, I will not ever do the thing that they tell me to do, you know, when they yeah. start with that. Yeah. So, yes, no, that's so good. I, I, I think the only thing I would add that's connected to that is like, and I, this might be controversial, I don't know, but Brené Brown, really good resource on this. Like, there's a huge difference between sympathy and empathy. Like, sympathy is like, man, that sucks. I think empathy is like, not like what Jason says, like, oh, I know what you're feeling, but kind of just being in that silent, like, hurt and just being there. I think there's a huge difference in that. And I think, what does that look like? I think it's just different for each person. But like you said, like, I think, I think one thing that I used to do that I need to catch myself is trying to silver line the problem. Like... Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's an example like oh man like my kids are horrible it's like oh you know at least you have kids or like oh my marriage sucks like oh at least you're married like i think that doesn't help like this 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 uh, obsession with positivity that we have is just not helpful and i think what tom says sometimes silence is the best thing and i I think think, we we need to do that because it makes us feel comfortable yes we don't we can't handle people's discomfort we have to do something to manage it that's because we can't even handle our own discomfort i guess Mm -hmm. we're too deep Mm -hmm. but that's so true and i tom actually mentioned this uh, a while back to me when I was in church with him. I think, and this is cheesy, but I think when there is something to be said, maybe like just saying scripture is the best thing, which is hard because that means you have to read the Bible. But so much, you know, if, if I'm honest, so much of our unsolicited advice is just BS. It's just like, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I tried this thing, like just try that. It's just like, what are we saying, you know? And I think like that, that point Tom, I think it was just like a staff training Tom made once. It was just helpful, like, Man, how much of, okay, silence is so necessary, but the first words after silence is not my thoughts, but like, hey, like that just triggered like a verse. And that sounds cheesy even to me, right? But I'm just like, man, I think that's how scripture is supposed to work. And I think that's hard because that means you need to know your Bible, but more motivation to do that too. So I think that's really helpful to be balanced in in this emotional health, uh, I guess, problem that we have too. No, that's so good. Um, A huge uh, fan of Martin Lloyd-Jones recommend his book spiritual depression um and in it he talks about the importance of talking to yourself and you know often talking to yourself with scripture you Mm -hmm. know and he he kind of makes a distinction between when you're in that state of depression don't listen to yourself because what yourself is saying to you is often lies you know um but the most effective way to talk to yourself is to use um, God's words to you, yes. you know, and I think, um, yeah, this is where like Bible memorization as like childish as that can seem is one of the m- most beneficial habits you can cultivate in your life, yeah. you know, um, to be able to put in. And, and when I, when I talk to counselors and mentors and when I hear them just pull these verses out and speak truth into my life, it's yeah. like, amazing it's so nourishing yeah that's so true and they, they they do it well because it's not like fumbling through their bibles to find it it just you just know it resonating in their hearts like they're not playing the chords they're playing jazz with you right at that moment yes so that's yes. why it's received really well yes. yeah it's not like i think paul talks about love somewhere <laughs> somewhere in one of his letters yeah. you know first or second somewhere somewhere <laughs> That's so true. Like, even for me, if it's like, you know, if someone's like just pulling out Bible verses like that, it's like, oh, like, 
this guy must be holy. And whether that's true or not, like, <laughs> it's going to work, you know? Like, you're going to surprise that person. And I, I think that's helpful. Like, Bible memorization is so, in, in a world that's in, in, in ESV <laughs> app, like, that's so necessary, too. So, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good path question. And I think the last just thing, I, I and I think Jason's point is good, um, any resources that you would recommend to maybe... Uh, I'll do two camps. What, what are the resources you'd recommend to those who are struggling with some sort of emotional problem or, or they feel kind of stuck? And resources to even help, like how can I be a better listener? How can I be a better empathizer um, in, in our church too? So I think uh, like Jason mentioned, Spiritual Depression is really a great book. It's it's pretty short from what I remember too. So I think that's a great read too. But yeah, any other resources that you would recommend? Christians Get Depressed Too. Oh. It's a book. That's it's a short, it's a really uh, super short book that I found to be helpful where it just pretty much normalizes the idea of uh, Christians nice. getting depressed. Um, so that one's a good, uh, a good resource. That's by David Murray. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm reading The Body Keeps Score is an amazing book. It's a little long, but amazing to understand trauma and wounds. Um, I thought the books to help counsel, like Paul Tripp's book, uh, Instruments to Redeemer's Hand. That's a classic book. And um, there's another book called The Pastor and Counseling, uh, Deepak Reju. That's a nice book for pastors. Like, how do you counsel people, practically speaking? So, mm. Another book that, you know, we talked about family systems that I think is really good is uh, Robert Creech has a book called Family Systems and Congregational Life. Mm. He talks about a lot of the stuff we were talking about on this episode, you know, um, and I think good for both leaders, um, pastors, um, but also people who just want to kind of explore their own families of origin and get in there a little bit. Yeah. I, I haven't started this yet, but my, my one of my counselors that I'm seeing recommended God and Soul Care, um, the Ooh. therapeutic resource of the Christian. I, I think everything, if you've heard anything helpful from me, at least from my counselor, like he says a lot of it is from that book. So I'm going to get into that too. Um, and I think all the resources, I think CCF, you would probably say, Tom, is a really good uh, mm-hmm. resource too. Um, I, one thing I've been doing recently that's been really helpful is like I try, you know, with my devotionals, is my devotionals is always like, oh, I love a pissed, I love like meaty books. And I hated the Psalms, like growing, maybe that's my apathy speaking. But one thing I've been trying to do every time I wake up, like rather than going through an epistle is just read one Psalm. Very simple. Like they're really short. That's actually been really helpful for me because uh, it just makes you realize like how emotionally articulate the psalmist was and like how I'm not like, man, like this guy like hates God right now. And like, I don't think I could ever even say what he's saying or like this guy really needs God right now. So I think for me, that's been helpful. I think just reading through the Psalms, there's just short and there's like, it's just like such an underrated resource, I think in the Bible. So I, I think a constant reading of that is really helpful too. Cool. Well, we hope that was helpful. Um, and, and you know, if you can see a counselor, we'd really recommend it. If you if you need help, like I guess you could DM our page, and hopefully we can give you some resources too. But yeah, with that, we're really thankful that you could listen. And any last uh, shout outs for you guys? Oh, happy, happy late birthday to Tom. He was happy yeah, birthday, tw- sir. Thank you. Thank you. Recently, so thank you. Congrats to Tom. Yeah. Any, any other shoutouts for you guys? Lakers won their first game tonight. Sh- hey, shout out, shout out, Carmelo. That was tight. That Carmelo, was really tight. I can't wait for this season. It's gonna be fun to watch as a Warriors. But Curry's looking good. Hey, Amazing. this Lakers team gives me 2013 vibes so much. 
You're absolutely first right. Threat. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but the difference is LeBron will trade all these fools in a second. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But, but yeah, cool. Well, hey. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. If you like any of our stuff, if you could comment uh, any of our stuff, uh, rate on Apple, that would be really helpful. But other than that, we're just thankful that you're listening. So hope you're blessed and we hope to see you in our next episode.